Hello, Imperfect listeners. It's your host, Luke West, back with another episode. Today's guest is Tim Musso. I talk about his bio at the beginning of the episode, but on this episode, you will find us talking about how he finds his identity as a human and man after his sexual assault, why the way we talk about sexual assault in society is wrong, why statistics about sexual assault only really get us so far in the conversation, and why we need to look at the data and methodology of the research being done on these topics to get a better understanding. We also talk about how high-profile cases and whether or not they hinder or help the overall discussion about sexual assault, and then we finish off the conversation with some best practices to stop sexual violence or harm in real time without also putting yourself or them in more danger. Uh, There's some other topics sprinkled in between as well, but now let's get into the show. Imperfect listeners, I am here today with Tim Musso. It's going to be a great conversation. I'm really excited about it. Tim Musso is a survivor of sexual violence, and he's turned to an educator and advocate on this very important topic. At the age of 22, Tim was faced with an incident of sexual assault. On top of this, Tim had to manage the stresses of workplace sexual harassment from his boss, who used knowledge of Tim's trauma to exert toxic control. Coming to terms with his experiences, Tim recognized how it left him feeling powerless. He vowed no one else should ever feel the same way. For the last nine years, Tim has been a speaker with over 400 organizations, including members of the United States Congress, top universities, and Fortune 500 companies across the world on the topics of sexual violence and harassment prevention. Tim's research currently centers on how individuals set and maintain safety boundaries, along with a study on how to better engage men in sexual violence prevention work. Professionally, Tim received a master's in organizational leadership from Gonzaga and a bachelor's in communication from the University of New Mexico. I also have a bachelor's in communication, so we got some familiarity there. And today we're going to talk about bystander effects, you know, being a victim as a man and the stigma behind that. Um, But Tim, before we get into all that, how are you showing up today from like an emotional level, from a um, presence level, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. So I think... um... I think just it's a, I would say general time of anxiety right now. Weirdly enough, I think it's just like kind of right on the cusp of, I wouldn't say life returning to normal because there is no such thing as normal. But I think there's this like large mix of, I live in New York City. It's starting to get warmer and starting to feel like it's reopening. It feels like it's the first New York for the first time in a long time, even though a lot of people don't have the vaccine. And so it's kind of just this like feeling of waiting kind of like the last year has been like, we've been, you know, life has gone forward, but it's really this place of like, okay, what's coming next and uh, what's going to happen. So. Awesome. Yeah, I know. It's it's so weird as the weather gets nicer and I go on walks every day and I see more and more people out and I'm like, oh, it's so tempting to just be back out there and and think like nothing happened. But who is one (laughs) to follow up with that? Who, who is one person dead or alive that you'd like to have over for dinner and what would you cook for them? I think I would love to have Tom Robbins. He is a author. He does a lot of literary fiction, um, and he's written a few of my like favorite books. And I just I love his style. I love the way he he does it. And I think probably Peach Cobbler or Peach Pie. Um, he has a few com- like stories in his memoir about that specific dish. And so I think it'd just be like fun to see what his thoughts would be and how he would describe what I made for him. And just, I think just listening to him and being able to pick his brain would be phenomenal. I have one of his like book of just conversations about writing on my shelf. And I'm like, man, I would love to just hear the way he views the world. 
do you, do you would you be intimidated by making a peach cobbler that didn't live up to his standards? Do you think? I think probably. I think I would be more intimidated by talking to him as an author because I mean that's that's one part of my identity is like I really want to be a published author and writer and that's like a huge piece of what I want to do with my life and so I think it yes I think it'd probably be just a way of like taking even the own pressure off myself right of like cool I'm going to do this so that you don't judge or critique the way my mind works or the way my literary career is showing up right you can you can critique yeah. the dish I make for you not the the shared goal and interest that I have that connects with yours and so obviously the topic that we're going to talk about today is, is pretty heavy, pr- pretty prevalent in as the last two weeks we had the Sarah Everard case. Um, but I'm really interested before we get into some of the more in-depth questions about how we talk about sexual assault wrong in society, what the bystander effect should look like, how we talk about this topic as men. Can you give a little bit of a rundown about your personal experiences with it just to set up the rest of the conversation? Absolutely. Um, you know, so really sexual violence and assault is something that impacted me when I was about 22 years old. Um, at the time I was working, I was kind of like my first post-college job kind of piece. And I thought, Hey, this is great. It's normal. Um, and I started to receive anonymous letters to my workplace that were sent to me by someone who was essentially stalking me. Um, and the, the first letter I received talked about how in college, one of my good friends died by suicide and the world would be better if I'd killed myself versus them. And they just were very derogatory letters. And I never really thought too much of it. I I mean, it was awful. And it was kind of like this person has a problem with me and they're terrible and they're saying terrible things. But I didn't think like I can do anything about it or it was worth even meriting doing something about until I essentially um, received an envelope. And in that envelope were pictures of me being sexually assaulted. Um, And so based on the fact that I have tattoos, we know beyond a reasonable doubt, it's me in the photos. Based on my tattoos, we know that I was likely 20 years old when the photos were taken. And based on how limp and lifeless my body is, we know I was likely drugged um, in when the assault happened, because I had no memory of it. Um, and I still don't. I mean, I have the photographs to kind of tell me what happened um, and to document that. And then the letters continued. And so really, it, it, it kind of just changed my world. And all of a sudden, I came to terms and realization of like, Hey, this is something that happened to me. Um, and this is also something that's bigger in that I have someone who did this to me, who documented it. And now is going through all these links to still intimidate me and still, you know, send me this photographic evidence of it and try and harass me and wants to cause harm to me in some kind of capacity. So dealing with like, what's the extent of the harm they're trying to cause to me now after what they've done. And so there was this very large degree of, um, really having to come to terms with this new identity and reconciling what it meant for me and learning how to like live again as a person. Yeah. And you, and you talk about how you had to find this identity. I'm curious, was, do you know who it was? Is that person, did that person pay punishment or is that person still at large? Still at large. Um, I know as a man, um, based on the information they know about me, they probably were somewhat connected to like my friend group or social circle in college. Um, and past that, I know nothing. Like I kind of drove myself a little crazy for a while trying to figure out who it was, but I, um, I had a private detective, but we could never figure it out. Like they were smart mm-hmm. in the way they sent the letters and like kind of keep me clear of any indicating information. And so I just, I, there was literally this like gap of knowledge of who did this to me and who it was. Like I said, there was, there was a long time where I was like, maybe it was this person or maybe it was this person, but I never really figured out exactly who it was and couldn't to this day tell you. Right. 
Yeah. So as you progress through that moment of you realize now that you've been sexually assaulted and you're trying to come to terms with that and that identity, I mean, as a man, as an individual, as a human, there's probably a lot of pain that you're feeling navigating all of that. In terms of your masculinity, what was the process like when it came to figuring out your your worth or your value as a human or in a man? Was there any correlation there? Absolutely. Um, you know, interestingly enough, a, a few of the first conversations I had around it were with other men and they weren't positive. You know, so at the time, because it has happening in my place of work and I wanted to call the police, I had to tell my boss at the time what was happening. And his reaction was, you know, are you sure this isn't something you did that you are you're embarrassed of? Are you sure this isn't something you did that you're doing yourself for attention? Or, you know, the third thing he told me is you should make sure no one finds out about this because it'll probably impact your career. Um, when I told the police officers, they were kind of a little dubious, even though I had photographic evidence of like, why is this a problem? Do you feel threatened? Like one of the questions the police officers asked me is like, do you feel threatened? And I was like, well, yeah. And they're like, but like, do you feel like your life's threatened? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, we can't do anything. It was just like a weird way of framing it of like, do I feel like I'm going to die? No. Do I feel like someone assaulted me and like, this is pressing? Yes. And they basically told me like, we can't do anything about this. Um, but there was a lot of conversations I had with people where it was like, essentially the message that was kind of pushed on me was like, why didn't you stop it? Why did you allow this to happen? And it put me in a really dark place for a long time because I felt like, I could talk to women about it um, because a lot of the women I had conversations were very sympathetic or understanding or were just there. And a lot of times I would talk to men. It was kind of this like very weird, messed up, you know, well, why did it happen? Or, you know, what did you do about it? And like, did you retaliate kind of thing? And so over a long time, it really pushed me to like basically a lot of like shame and just isolation. I basically kept myself isolated for a long time. And I, I just, closed off instead of actually seeking out help or trying to healthily deal with it. Instead, I just said, look, I'm going to isolate myself. And I cut off a lot of relationships with people because I didn't know who to trust. And I was very, um, you know, I was aggressive for a long time. I was angry. And it just, it really was very damaging to have to deal with that. Yeah. And it's so sad whenever you hear that when these men open up about these situations, there's all these questions. And the same happens for women too. The same happens not to say that it doesn't. So when it comes to the discussion about what should happen or, or even the discussion on a wider scale about sexual assault, you know, one of the things that you've told me and, and we've had conversations about is that the way we talk about it is wrong. So how should we go about talking about sexual assault for both men and women in, in society as a whole? So I think one of the biggest first pieces is who we're blaming, right? So I think a lot of times, even like the way we talk about data and statistics is we talk about like one in four women experience sexual violence when instead we should be looking at the capacity of like how many people are perpetrating sexual violence or, you know, one in six men experience sexual violence. And even just that terminology to a degree puts the onus on the survivor of like, this is something that happened to you, not something that we're not talking a lot of times about what an assailant did, um, you know, and it, this used to go into a lot of like prevention literature that we would do in like sex education programs and sexual violence prevention programs in the past. And we're moving away from this to some degree, but a lot of times it's still this degree of like, don't walk on the street at night, don't wear these type of clothes, watch out for these type of things when it, it's really missing the mark of 
you should be able to exist in society doing anything and not experience sexual violence, sexual assault in those kind of ways, right? Like, even if you're even if you're walking down the street completely hammered drunk, like that doesn't give someone the right to do these things to you. Um, I think the other thing we oftentimes see with sexual violence is people are unable to separate it from general sex as they know. And so I talk about this a lot in that, like, for most people, when we talk about a lot of other crimes, they're not crimes that we choose to engage in, right? So like murder is a prime example. Like most of us never, overwhelmingly majority of people never murder anyone. So if we hear about a murderer, we're like, I may have known that person. That's shocking. But if we have this irrefutable evidence, we're like, that's awful. I can't comprehend why they would do that. For a lot of people, because we choose to engage in sexual, I mean, almost everyone, unless you identify as asexual, engages in sexual activity, right? And so we always associate most of times sex with either pleasure or with intimacy. And so the, the correlation becomes when we hear about sexual violence, we are misattributing it to the sex idea of things and not the violence idea of things. And so a lot of times when you hear of these public cases or incidents that happen, that's why I think people sometimes still struggle when they hear of sexual violence and they hear of someone, especially if like they know someone that did it or if it's in their community, they are thinking about it from their own correlation of sex, not the perpetrator's correlation of violence. And that's why a lot of times you hear those misnomers of, but they're such a good person. I couldn't see them doing that, but they're a good son or family member or friend or all of those kind of things. And it's because we cross that ties of we're still thinking of it of sex. We're not thinking of the violence piece. Um, and so we continually have to challenge why that is the narrative around it and really reinforcing that, it's not about the sex itself. It's about the actual act of violence, right? As mentioned, we engage in sex for you know intimacy or pleasure. Perpetrators engage in sexual violence for power or control. And we really need to make that shift of like, they're doing this not because of sex. Sex is the way they're choosing to exert it. But for them, it's all about that power and control. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great tie in. Cause I, I've read Chanel Miller's book, know my name. And she talks about that is this idea that it was so hard for the public to see Brock Turner as someone who could commit such a bad act because when they did his testimony, they had people come in and speak to his character and, Oh, he was like, it was like a um, swim teacher or a high school teacher that came in and he's like, Oh, he wasn't a problem in my classroom. And it, it again ties into that idea of, they're speaking about the sex act and rather than the violent. And she goes on to say, we need to get over this idea that these people can't, that people can't be bad. Good people can do evil things and, and good people can hurt other people. They're not, that lives and exists within everyone. But he, what he chose to do was violence towards me and like paraphrasing, not really getting it exact there, but that's kind of the framework, which is what you just alluded to too. Yeah. And I think it, it comes down to like, perfectly from that, like paraphrasing, it comes down to a lot of times just the worth that I think we sometimes place in stories of survivorship, right? And like the the way we put kind of, again, that onus on the survivor of like, what were they doing? What were they wearing? How are they acting? As opposed to putting the onus on the person who did the assault and why did they choose to engage in these behaviors? Um, interestingly enough, a lot of times when you look at like, especially in the American core systems, when people who commit an act of sexual violence face any type of legal persecution for it, more often than not, it's because it's a case involving children, which just kind of says a lot of like so many times when we hear of sexual violence, we're willing to persecute and automatically be on the side of the survivor if they're a child, because there's this idea of like, oh, well, they're innocent and they're pure and they're untainted because, again, we're, we're attributing it to sex as opposed to like the actual violence the perpetrator is doing. We're still we're still over 
you know, we're, we're putting in this idea of like, it can't be that damaging or it can't be that harmful or, you know, you're still alive so you can recover from it. Um, you know, it's, it, you'll, you'll be okay. Um, versus actually looking at the, the impact that can come from when you do experience any form of sexual violence. And, and I, I heard you talk about earlier, this idea of we're putting the too much emphasis on the victim when it comes to, you know, women that have faced domestic violence rather than the perpetrators out there. When we're not talking about men who commit violence, we're talking about, um, I, f- I forget the terminology that we're using, but like victims of sexual assault. And, and are you, are you a fan of Jackson Katz? Cause I think he has a Ted talk on that, right? Is that, is that where that idea comes yep. from? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, I love Jackson Katz, love his work. I mean, I've, I followed along with it and a lot of the research he does. Cause I think, yeah, he has an amazing Ted talks where he talks about like, even like he just says like the way we frame the statistics is so much in regard to like putting it on the, we always talk about that regard of like, it's who is experiencing it, who is, um, you know, what are the statistics related to who is doing it, who is experiencing it versus who is doing it. Yeah. And it's, it's so important. And I had this conversation with someone the other day when it came to the murder in mass shooting in Atlanta, when it came to the murderer, domestic terrorist, however you want to call it, and saying that, oh, he just had a bad day. And I remember posting that he didn't just have a bad day. He's a murderer and that should be no excuse. And someone messaged me back and saying like, you know, why does it matter the way we frame it? I'm like, the way we, ma- the way we frame things does matter. Is it a hate crime? Is it not? Well, maybe it's not a hate crime against Asians, but it was still a hate crime against women because he said that he didn't, he wasn't getting sex and no one was attracted to him basically. And so if it's not a hate crime against Asians, it's still a hate crime against women. And so that there is an important structure of how we talk about the problem, which is what you're alluding to too, when it comes to this situation. Yeah. Well, and I think what's fascinating sometimes that people don't always realize is, so they've done neurological studies, right? And what they found by like studying the brain is that the language you use around sexual violence and sexual assault actually changes your behavior on it. So they were finding that when you were more willing to use sexually violent or derogatory language, you were more, you were more willing to engage in or be complicit in acts of sexual violence. And I think that's always fascinating because I think a lot of times what we hear in this and the conversation that's emerged in the last few weeks about Atlanta, you know, about many cases always is this continual, like not all men, you know, we're not all doing this kind of thing. Right. And we know that with sexual violence, right. We know that it's estimated about what less than 6% of men are willfully engaging to choose an incident of sexual violence. But the counter I would say to that is that 90% of incidents of sexual violence involve men, you know, regardless of gender survivor. And I think what's a lot of times happening is that people, they hear the like, you know, would engage in or be complicit in acts of sexual violence. And they're saying to themselves, I would never engage in this. And they're kind of giving themselves a pass. They're saying like, I would never choose to willingly rape someone, do this, do X, Y, and Z, but they're missing out on all these other things of behaviors that can, you know, they're, they're basically allowing or they're permitting, um, you know, the things that build into that, right? Like, I think a lot of times when we look at especially extreme acts of sexual violence, it doesn't just start in a vacuum. Um, there is rarely a time where someone just goes out and engages in one behavior of sexual violence. Generally, it's a level of kind of escalation. They kind of test the boundaries. They see what they can get away with within their communities and their cultures. They do one thing. They see how they respond. They see what it's like. They see the power it gives them. And then they go to another place. And then they go to another place. And they give to go to another place. And a lot of times, it's trying to help people understand, like, 
there are people around that individual who are generally watching them progress along these lines. And if you could step in and have that conversation with them, then you may be able to make an impact, right? Like if you actually were able to engage with them the first time they made that extremely sexist or vile joke, right? Or if you were able to engage with them the first time they got rejected and their go-to response was to demean the person who rejected them or to talk badly about them or call them a you know slut or whatever term they want to use, right? Like if that's the point you could engage with them, who knows what behavior you might be able to pre- prevent down the line. Um, and so I think that's why we have to continue to use the right language because it's it's not always necessarily just the people who are doing it. It's all this complicity around it that's continuing to exist. And, and before we get into that, I wanted to ask you one more question about the case and, and how we go around sexual assault is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about police and and how integrated they are with it. And I've read a, a book, I think it's called A False Report. I think it's up on my bookshelf. I, I don't know if it's the right name or not, but it's about this serial rapist. Um and the and the, the police system, how they're all disconnected but interconnected at the same time. Rape kits, they don't share that information across different counties. What are your thoughts on should it be a responsibility of the, of the police or should there be an external either organization, whether it's government or not for profit or or what handling these types of cases? Regardless of who it is, right, whether so it is a police or is if it is a nonprofit, it has to be much better. Um, it is so woefully ill-equipped right now. Um, I think it's one of those things that they've found like for every a thousand reports that come forward, one person will face any kind of criminal time for an assault. Uh, more often than not, it's because there are multiple survivors. You know, as mentioned earlier, generally those survivors tend to be children. Um, a lot of times there has to be very extreme physical evidence. So a lot of times there has to be like video evidence that's a clear depiction of it, um, photographic evidence that's a clear depiction of it, or like very you know, intense bruising damages to the body of the person who comes into the hospital, things like that. Um, a lot of times it, survivors who come forward, it does nothing. And, you know, part of it is like, when we look at the police system, um, I've done some work with a lot of like police departments of doing like sensitivity training of trying to help them understand like terminology to use and ways to talk to a survivor and what it's like when someone has just experienced sexual violence to potentially walk into a room with a variety of individuals. And I think it's like, if, if even just the fact that, right, so 93% of assaults that are committed against women are committed by men. And so you hear that, and you think about a lot of like police forces and what it might be like for a female to walk into a police station and to have a guy that looks like the person who just assaulted her being the one asking her questions about what happened. And I think that's like this disconnect the police officers don't always reconcile, they don't always realize, they're not always aware of. And so I think that right now, I would say the system is just like fundamentally broken um, because a lot of times people aren't coming forward because there's no conviction, right, for it. And, you know, you hear all these times, whether it's someone's reported something five, six times, and then they're eventually killed by their stalker or assailant or abuser, or they come forward and they're, you know, the way they're questioned about it is dismissive. The questions they're asked are inappropriate. There really needs to be like kind of a top-down rework of the system of like the way we're adjudicating it from a policy perspective, how we're training judges around it to hand out sentences, how we're training pre- police officers to collect evidence and have conversations just because it's, it's, it really is a failing. And I think it just creates – it further adds to that system of shame and that stigma around it. Um, I think a lot of times when you see high profile cases, there's always these questions of like, well, why didn't they come forward earlier? And my response is, because coming forward sucks. 
like it is not an easy thing. Like having sat down and gone through an interrogation about what happened to me, it is a very clinical process that for me was a little bit removed because this was just letters, but like some of the questions they ask you are very difficult to hear. And so I think we definitely need to reevaluate and change and tweak that system entirely to make sure that the right training exists and the right information is getting to the right people and the way that we're treating and dealing with survivors is better. Yeah. And, and it's always one of those things where it's it's really hard to understand and navigate that even from a citizen's perspective. Because when I always think about it, even if it is a case of sexual assault, you know, consent, consensual it's it's harder because if, if there's a murder and DNA is at the scene, it's easier to detect. But obviously in a sexual intercourse relationship or, or anything, there's going to be DNA there. And then there's rape kits and, and swabs only exist for so long. They're only, they're only effective for so long before it heals. And there's just so much that goes into it in that narrative. And I was really interested in, in hearing your, your perspective on that because I know there's been a lot of talk about that with BLM and, and defunding the police and navigating a lot of that. And it's a really, and I think Know Your Name or Know My Name by Chanel Miller should be a must read for everyone, every man, especially, because I think it, it is so valuable about the process, the grueling process of what it is for women to go through in order to even push convictions. Like when she made the decision, she really didn't know what the whole process was going to be like thought it was going to be quick and over but no she went through it for like three years dragged through it all dragged through the lawyers and like the lawyer asks like really hard questions too and they try to manipulate you into answering one thing and it, it really is a gross process in every way of the term but you also have to understand as a citizen you, there needs to be proof and and enough proof to convict and it, that's why it's so messy um so i really appreciate your insight there yeah um, but going yeah, now, one thing I would that, say real quick on oh, that yeah. is, um, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, like, I think the other thing, um, just a good thing to remember is like, also, we can also change some of the laws of like what we're considering to be and like what we're persecuting. So like, for example, in 2017, Texas was the first United State to do, um, to criminalize unsolicited nude photos. So like, if you sent someone a dick pic, that became a misdemeanor. And you could face a, a fine or like minor sentencing or community service for that. And I think it's like sometimes changing that narrative too, because like that's a very easy thing to prove. Like more often than not, there's a text change of like, hey, what's up? Why'd you send me that? Oh, I thought you might want it. And I think it's just like challenging some of those ways of like how we're looking at sexual violence to include things that are not just violent rape of like, hey, this just builds this narrative of like, this is now societally criminalized and you can't just do this and, and the reason is is because it is a form of violation and it is a form of harassment and like i think some of those things as well can help right like putting in some of those barriers to entry where it's yeah. like hey we're recognizing this adds to it and contributes to it and reinforces and is part of that like building a momentum yeah no that's a great point too especially with the age of snapchat and sexting and i think it's really hard for a lot of young kids to to recognize that now there's so much hypersexuality within like 12 to 18 year olds and you see on platforms like tiktok about just how they're using their body and i'm like i i think tiktok should be an 18 plus site i don't know i think it's some of the stuff on there is really graphic and, and grotesque um especially knowing that the it's mostly 12 to 18 year olds on it um but I, so, so to go to that point about engaging in the conversation, and this was something I was having with a, a conversation I was having with a couple others, and, and you mentioned it a little bit 
earlier, how do you stop the sexist comments? How do you engage with your friends, with your environment, with those around you? I know that some people suggest asking questions. Don't say, hey, this is wrong, but ask questions like, why do you think that's funny? Or, you know, what what is why why does that make them a slut that they've slept with three or four people? Like what what is the best framework that you've seen about engaging in those conversations? Yeah, I think the the questioning method is good because it kind of forces them to like share some of their motivations or things like that. Um, I would say one of the uh, another really good thing is kind of judging, engaging um, when it's happening and when it gets, when it's occurring. Of like, is this behavior causing harm in the immediate moment? If not, is it the right time to call that person out? Right. So, like, if you're in a large group setting and it's public, and you call someone out, that can be embarrassing, and it can be a lot of those things. And so, all of a sudden, I think, it, regardless of like your intention or how you do it, that person becomes defensive because you've just put them out in front of the entire group. Versus, if no harm is occurring and no harm has occurred, can you wait a little while later to pull them aside and say, "Hey, by the way, like I want to talk about what you said earlier." Um, if you are, when you're calling someone out, I would say always, you know, try and focus on one incident and one behavior. Um, it can be hard for someone to hear as well. Like, Hey, every time we talk about so-and-so you make these awful comments versus, Hey, the other day you said this and like, I want to talk about what that is and kind of things. Um, as you mentioned, it's that kind of question of like, why'd you say this? Why is this okay? Why do you think this is funny? Some of those type of pieces, um, I think it is, it can be good and it is okay to say like, Hey, that offends me. And I'm not okay with that. I'm not comfortable with that language. I don't like that language. I think one place where people get trapped in that is feeling like they have to justify and explain why they don't like it. And you don't. And I think that's a, an important part for people to remember. Like if someone makes a rape joke and you want to challenge them on that joke and you want to talk to them about it and you say, Hey, like, I really don't find it funny to joke about rape. And they say, well, why not? Like, you don't have to respond with why not? Like, that's not your job. You don't have to do that, right? Like, you don't have to get into some, you know, intense debate about that. You can just say, I don't find it funny. And so that's not appropriate. Please don't do that, right? Um, I think the other thing that might come up is sometimes I think when you start to challenge and have more in-depth conversations, so especially if you're talking with a friend or someone you know about this stuff, I think sometimes you will see... You know, once you get past the initial question of like, hey, why do you think that's funny? Hey, why do you think that's appropriate? Hey, if you thought about someone who might have experienced sexual violence, who heard that, how would that make them feel kind of thing? I think the hard thing that might emerge sometimes is I think people sometimes like to go towards like statistics, which I've seen a lot where they're like, well, did you know that so-and-so or this or, you know, all of these type of things? And if they try and do that, there's a few ways you can respond to that of like, Hey, I understand. I want to focus on what we're experiencing right now and what our experience is and where we are, right? Like, um, I always like to try and challenge hypotheticals of like, hey, let's keep the center to where we are. Let's not go down this like if or what train of like, if it was this scenario, would this be okay? Let's focus on what happened and where we are. And then if they are bringing up like data or numbers or they want to talk about something from like a logical point, always being like, hey, I haven't heard that. I'm not aware of that. Um, how about this? You, you do some research and come bring some sources. Can I do some research and send you some sources? And then once we do that, we come back together and talk about it. Um, cause I think I found that really effective sometimes with like these issues where I'll see people be like, well, you know, X percentage of this is lies or X percentage of this is false reports. 
And if you don't know the data behind it, like I do, because that's my job, if you don't know that, it can be very hard to be like, oh, okay, versus like, hey, I've never heard that. Can we come back and talk about it later? And so just remembering, like, you don't have to know everything in that moment. You don't have to be an expert in it. It's always okay to say, hey, I want to continue this conversation. Can we do some research on our own and come back to it? Do you know who Steven Crowder is? I do know who Steven Crowder is, yep. Yeah, uh, that's that's the thing that pisses me off the most about him is how he goes to university campuses with a book and binder full of statistics and makes yeah. young university kids look like idiots to prove a point. I'm like, all you're proving is that you're a bad debater. <laughs> like yeah. that's all you're proving to me. Yep. Oh yeah. yeah <laughs> and like, and if, so many. If you have all the time to prepare for something, sure, you're going to win the argument. I also think he does a lot of like logical fallacies of like he'll throw thirty questions at you and then be like, we'll respond to them, and you're like which one, like you just gave me 30 different data points. Like I can, that's a lot of stuff to remember. And then you forget one. And he's like, but you forgot this one. And I'm like, cool. Great. Like that's yeah. a, it's a really terrible, like it's good for YouTube, but. Yeah. And I, I always tell people when they talk about these issues, I mean, the statistics only tell you what's reported. It doesn't tell you what's not reported. Like, there's a whole piece of the puzzle when it comes to rape cases that never get reported. There's a whole piece of sexual assault and sexual harassment cases that never get reported. I mean, I've talked to almost all my women friends have been catcalled in some way or said something inappropriate to them at a club and they've never reported it. But I know that yeah. that's been an experience of theirs. So to bring up these stat statistics is a false narrative. And then another one that a lot of these people talk about when they come back at you with these these uh, talking points is Ben Shapiro's facts don't care about your feelings yeah. bullshit. And I'm like, oh my God, can we get this rhetoric out of society, please? Because well, you throw facts back at Ben Shapiro and he's all up in his feelings sometimes. So how do you navigate with those types of, of men? Because that's a lot of the men that you see kind of discussing it in either Reddit forums or Twitter. How, how, do, you, how do you argue against those people or do you not even argue with them? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes the, the, the hard thing for me is like, I have better facts, right? Like, so, um, my background is in data and research and that's part of like what I do in my master's program. And so it's like, it, it's sometimes trying to, and that's why a lot of times I'll ask people like, what are your sources? Cause it's easy to point to like some of the flaws in those studies. That's a great way to pick it apart. Cause they'll be like, oh, well we did this study and I'm like, cool, but you studied 10 people. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. You have the study that says X, Y, and Z, but you study 10 people. Or, you know, like I've seen a lot of times about like false reports. There's this huge study gets sent around like in conservative media. And I'm like, yeah, because they intentionally went in and found false reports and then just counted those, right? So like it's skewing the data every way. And so like sometimes it's looking at like, hey, can you send me that study? So like, I would love to see the methodology behind it. Like, I'd love to talk with you about that. And like, just looking at it, I think sometimes just even as simple as like asking people like, Hey, can you cite that source for me? And like, where did you find that? Some of those pieces. Um, and then I think the, the really, it's, it's harder nowadays because of like some of how the last four years have been of like how often politicized things used to be, but like some of the data we have around sexual violence comes from like the Department of Justice or like the FBI or like the World Health Organization. And like I said, that used to mean a lot more where it was like, oh, like these large standing institutions, especially sometimes things that were viewed very conservatively have this data. And then people like that used to be like the Department of Justice was viewed as like a conservative pinnacle. And it was like, cool. And now it's just sometimes it can here, sometimes it can't. But I think it's sometimes pulling from information from other sources that they perceive not to be biased in some of those ways, right? Um, or then other times it's like looking at the, 
I think it's trying to get to the root of the argument that people are experiencing of like, what are you actually saying? Like, are you afraid? Why are you afraid? You know, and what is that fear grounded in? Because I think a lot of times fear around sexual violence with men is this reoccurring fear I hear where guys are like, I'm afraid I'm going to get falsely accused. And so it's talking about like, what does that mean? Why are you afraid of that? What does that look like? You know, where are you hearing about that? Because you may hear all these things. But let's kind of like contextualize that for you and your relationships and what this looks like and what that process looks like and how often or little that happens and what are ways to like avoid that and talk about some of those things. Because I think it's I think people are afraid and they use statistics to cover up that fear. And once you can get to some of that fear, it's much easier to like talk about that with the empathetical side of look, I'm not judging you. I just want to hear your fear. Let's talk about it and get through that. Yeah, and that that's a great way of looking at it too. And and I know that when the Sarah Everard case came out, there was that whole ninety seven persist ninety seven percent statistic about women in the UK. I think being uh, harassed, and then people I saw people on TikTok being like, "This was bad methodology." Some of the options were saying, like, literally being stared at was being harassed, and the real number about actual like assault and and physical violence is about thirty five percent, which is way still way too high, right? Um, yeah. But that, I I noticed that and. That's why it is so true to go back to the data and actually look and, and see what the results are because, I mean, everyone gets stared at on the street and, and that would very rarely be called sexual harassment unless it's like leering and clear like something, right? Uh, comments being made in, in conjunction with that. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's great to point out the, the importance of looking at the methodology of, of data and, and how to use it. And facts don't care about your feelings, but hey- Gotta gotta keep that same energy in return, and also, yeah, you can still have empathy despite having the facts. And empathy is an important part of that that whole yeah. discussion. Well, and that's the thing is, like you said, with that thirty five percent number, like a lot of times when I talk about some numbers of sexual violence, people are like, "Well, it's only this," and I'm like, "But like, why are you okay with that?" Right? Like, this is a preventable crime that no one has to experience. So, like, why are you willing to build the bridge of like it's only this? Like, a lot of times when I do sexual harassment type stuff in the workplace. Like we know that 40% of women in America will experience some form of sexual harassment in the workplace. And sometimes people are like, oh, well, that, that doesn't seem as high as it could be. And I'm like, look, here's the thing. If 40% of your workers were coming in and dealing with like safety and OSHA complaints where they were getting fingers cut off, you'd probably shut down your factory and start to concern like, why are my, why are my coworkers losing digits? But like, it's, it's, it's just this weird skewing of like, why are you willing to dismiss the fact that this is a significant part of the population, right? Like, and it's, it's that weird threshold of like, what number would you be okay with, right? So sure, you could say 97 is bad. Are you still okay with 35? You know, if, if it's what number are you willing to settle for, especially knowing that it's a preventative crime and especially knowing that like, it's a pretty, it's a crime that is going to take a lot of societal change to stop, but it doesn't necessarily require uh, exponential shift to many things. And, and so when you talk about it as a preventative crime, it, it can be really hard to imagine it as being preventative. And, and I've had this conversation a bit uh, with some, some female friends over the last two weeks too, is there's this idea that, so, so and I think I had it on, on a, a recent episode too, but self-defense, like I, I still think it's a really important skill to learn for women. And I understand it's a band-aid solution to the problem. And the problem is to to help men. But the reality that, that we currently live in is that the societal change that we're looking at, at creating won't happen for 10, 15 years, like 
because societal change is really hard just because of the scale yeah. at which it has to ex- happen. So I understand it's it's ridiculous to say self-defense habits shouldn't need to exist, correct. But that's not the reality that we live in. So how do you navigate that conversation when it comes to a pre- preventative case? Yeah. So some of it is is recognizing like we are seeing progress and it it is awful to hear that. It, I, mean, I get it as a survivor. Like when people are like, oh, we're seeing progress. It's still like, yeah. And I went through hell with my own survivorship. Um, one example I would say is we know since 1993, we have cut incidents of sexual violence by 60%, right? Um, and that's basically like both data around what's reported and what's not reported. Um, so some of that is, is based around this idea that like we have done a much, and that's, that's localized to the United States. I will add that caveat. Um, so part of what we're seeing is like, what, what made that change? Well, first and foremost, we started doing a much better job of talking about it. So we started having better conversations and better education around what actually is comprised of sexual violence and what, is it, what does it look like? What are all the behaviors that fall under this umbrella? What are the type of things that exist in this realm? We started to have much more comprehensive sexual education programs. So not everyone does this, but we started to talk about sexual education, not just from a protection standpoint and a heteronormative idea, but like looking at like consent and relationships and even like porn literacy classes and things like that. Um, you know, we, we did all these kind of things that started to swing the narrative of the pendulum. Some of it was changing laws, right? So up until 1990, there were still a number of states in the United States where you could spousal rape wasn't a crime. So there was this idea that if you were married, you couldn't commit rape, right? Um, and so it's there's all these things that have to go into it. We have to change the legal system and the crimes that we're looking at and adjudicating. You know, that's why I talk about that textbook example with misdemeanors for unsolicited nude photos. Like that's a great first step in saying, hey, this is a crime. And for a lot of guys, when I tell them that, they're like, why? And I'm like, well, think about you didn't send a consensual photo. Like you didn't get consent to send that photo. That can be very violating, especially the type of guy who usually would just send an unsolicited dick pic, right? Um and so it's, it's stuff like that of like, hey, let's let's change the way that we're talking about the narrative through the legal policies of what you can be held accountable for, how often we're adjudicating these, how we're making it easier for people to bring this information to it. Part of it is looking at like, what are the ways that we're educating our younger individuals around this to also add some of that pushback against other generations who might be entrenched and have accepted these viewpoints. Um, how are we educating older generations around it as well to also challenge them on this? Because it's not saying that they're hopeless. It's just saying like, hey, it's a little bit different way of if you're talking to a fifth grader versus a 60-year-old man, the way we're going to have that conversation, the way we're going to talk about those things. Um, part of it is awareness campaigns and all of those kind of aspects. Um, and so it's it's just like this constantly interweaving kind of way of like, how are we doing it? Who are we talking to? What information are we getting in front of them? Um, you know, what own, where are we putting the onus on people of like, who's responsible for this? And it takes time. And that's, like you said, it's, it's going to be 15, 20, 30, 40 plus years um, before. And that's sometimes devastating, exhausting, and all these other kind of pieces. Um, you know, but I think we're, we're seeing a lot of profound results when we've started to kind of like look at, can we teach this? One other thing I would say is um, not only not always only focusing on the negative, but focusing on like the positive where appropriate. Um, so the caveat of like when a woman experiences an incident of violence and murder, we don't need to have the conversation of like, here's how to have healthy relationships. We need to have the conversation of men need to stop doing this. But a lot of times we can still approach young men and teach them like, 
here's what a healthy relationship looks like. Here's what strong sexual values are. Here's how to communicate this. Here's how to check in with your partner around consent. It's kind of that duality of, yes, sometimes we need to shift the pendulum of men. You have to be accountable and you got to stop this. And at other times it's like, hey, let's also have healthy conversations around like what this looks like from a positive perspective. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because as you said, the the sexual violence, I believe you said, is, has been reduced by 60% in, in the last several years. And I've read Mark Manson's book, Everything is Fucked. And in it, it just basically talks about this idea of hope and how like Gen Z and millennials are one of the most depressed like the generations of all time, but we've never really had life better from almost every statistical vantage point. And it, it is weird how we, we do that. And I think it doesn't help with the sensationalization of news and how they, they target us and, and pitch us. But what are your, some of your thoughts on, on that as you tied in the positive, the 60%, and we are living in probably the best time where we do have the lowest amount of sexual violence, yet we still don't, we don't really see that uh, as a society as a whole because there's still so much left to go. I think it's, um, we can't take our foot off the gas, right? Because I think there's that degree of like, it's, I can, t- I can talk about these statistics, but I still have PTSD. I still have nightmares. I still have panic attacks because of what happened to me. Like, and it's that weird messed up stuff of, I still talk with survivors and it's, there's the way I have conversations with survivors is very different. I can never approach another survivor and tell them like, Hey, but at least 60% of people, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's still very damning when you've suffered this trauma and, and it doesn't do anything to diminish it when you experience it. Um, I think it's also important to recognize, like, we still have to advance the conversation on what is being held accountable and what's being considered assault, right? Like, we still need to look at all the kind of building blocks that add to it and dismantle all of them, not just the most extreme behaviors or not just the most violent ones in those regard. It can't just be like, hey, we stopped, you know, violent rape, but there's still all these other things going on. And it works in tandem, right? If, you know, communities where that's happening or organizations or cultures where that's being permitted, there's also catcalling and all those other things that build into it. Um, So it's looking at, like, how are we holding accountable in these areas of like, hey, we can dismiss, we can discourage some of these behaviors, but we also have to continually work on some of the other ones. Um, I think it's, it's the good thing about the positivity is I think we're survivors feel much more supported in coming out now. They tend to than ever before in certain circumstances and cases, which is good. I think with social media, we're seeing a lot of more kind of revolutionary tools of people are being given a voice that never had it before. Um, especially in organizations or environments where they couldn't speak up or share their perspective because there was this fear of reprisal or that no one would listen. And so I think that's going to continue to shift the narrative of how we're having this conversation Um, because I think there's a lot of power in the community-driven momentum of being able to call out behaviors because that has to happen, right? So like when we look at these high-profile incidents, we know that sexual harassment is almost not at all decreased in our country. So like sexual harassment in the workplace has not at all changed since like 1980 when many legislative bodies came in and put in laws of like, this has to stop and we have to do X, Y, and Z and require these type of trainings. Um, It hasn't really seen major, major shifts But one thing that has shifted is one third of companies now require their employees to sign NDAs. So like it's this weird mix of like we hear these high profile incidents. We have companies cracking down on the ability of employees to speak up about the incidents they're experiencing on their individual place. And that's why a lot of times like sexual violence work is so grassroots driven and so grounded in 
people coming forward in their own communities and using that to drive for that change. And and when you talk about high profile cases, one of the biggest ones I'm thinking of recently is is Brett Kavanaugh from from the state Supreme Court justice. And I don't know, I I don't think he was convicted, right? He was not, right? So it it never technically, and I think that's the thing that people struggle with, he never even went to trial, right? Like it was his, the allegations that came against Kavanaugh came up in a job interview. It wasn't even a trial, right? Like it was never in the legal system. It was basically, it was his confirmation hearing from the Supreme Court. So I guess my question and why I asked that is, do you think cases like that are helpful to the discussion when they're publicized, media's everywhere, tons of women come out, but there's still no conviction. Do you think that is helpful to the conversation or overall more damaging to maybe the movement of getting more convictions done? I think it's helpful. I think generally what we see, and research tends to back this up, when we see um, public awareness about this stuff raise we see more reports of it happening in local communities. So I think there's a bit of a trickle down effect. I think the other thing that you're seeing, and you see this a lot of times like on social media and stuff, is um, I think you see this high profile incident occur and the person like talks about it and talks about their experience. And then I think you have that like trickle down of like someone makes a disparaging comment and all of a sudden like someone from within their own community stands up and says, hey, I haven't shared my story as a survivor either. Would you say the same thing to me? You know, and so I think you see a lot of that kind of, um, which is really messed up because survivors shouldn't have to martyr themselves in order for people to care. And I think that's one of the problems with sexual violence in general. It's like a lot of times it takes people, people don't give a damn until they know survivors, which is just, again, abysmally devastating in many ways. But I think like anytime we raise the public consciousness around it, it does, I think, just increase the awareness of it, increases the awareness of people talking about it. I think it, it, it starts to create these narratives of, you know, I think with especially like the Kavanaugh and Chrissy Basie Ford, it was like, why did she wait so long? What was that like? And I think it did some justice to talking about what that was. And you saw a lot of powerful pieces come out of like, here's what it's like to exist as a woman where you can't share your story and you don't have the ability and the tools. And here's how we've changed. Here's how we can change it better. Um, so I think it does advance the public conversation. And I think the same side is as survivors, it can feel very like isolating and hopeless, right? Like there were times with Kavanaugh where I saw people that I know that I respect or in my life that are like related to me where I'm like, God, this is devastating. Like I have people I know who are like family members who know the work I do, who are like, well, I don't believe survive or like, I don't believe her story. And I'm like, sitting right here. Like I've never shown you my photos of my assault, but you've never questioned my experience. Why the hell is that? And, and I have, yeah, that's one thing that I've really come to terms with myself in my journey is you know, there's this idea of believe all women, but also the the fundamental belief of innocent until proven guilty. And it's one of those really interesting things to navigate. And in the if someone waits 30 years or whatever she waited to come out, it does seem really disingenuous. And like that is an easy first instinct to go to. And for me, and I've had conversations with women about this too, is I, I think like, do you think the believe all women or believe all victims, survivors is a damaging angle to come at it too? Like, what is the balance between belief and innocent until proven guilty for you? I think it, and I think this is sometimes where people 
get get caught up in like the idea of believe all survivors where they don't realize like especially in, I, in my work i talk about this like i say we believe all survivors and we also we repair the systems that prevent or prohibit survivors from coming forward and feeling safe talking about their experience and all that kind of stuff right um because i think it's like you know i'm a you know cis white man in america and i had photographic evidence of my experience and the way the cops treated me was still demeaning and made me feel like shit um and i think that's the hard thing is like it is one of those things where a lot of times when i talk about believe all survivors i'm like yeah it's okay to to have questions around what the survivor went through let's allow those questions to occur in the proper channels and while we're talking about the proper channels let's also fix those channels so survivors feel safe and supported and things like that right i think a lot of times people come forward is because whether it's years later or whatever it's because probably the channels in their society in their community or in their environment weren't as conducive as we think or as supportive as they think because they saw other survivors come forward and the way those survivors were treated was devastating and horrible and they're like hey look this is awful and i'm not going to go through that same degree of you know scorn or being treated that way i don't want to be exposed to that same stuff um you know there's that fear of those things sometimes there's you know the the people around them who they may be disclosed to who tell them stuff like oh he didn't mean it or they didn't mean it or you know give him a pass or just get over it all that kind of stuff right and so i think that when i say believe all survivors i do believe it, it is okay that in times we question survivors and we try and figure out and you know get to the, the root of what is going on with that story and that experience i think many survivors probably wouldn't mind their experience being adjudicated we just want the adjudication process to be fair and to be trusted right so like with the ford kavanaugh hearing um there's been some now allegations that the fbi didn't even do their due diligence so like the fbi who was supposed to investigate it rushed through the investigation instead of actually calling interviewing witnesses um there's now evidence that they didn't actually call witnesses and so it kind of creates a system where it's like you know people are like well why do you wait and it's like well because you wait and you have the FBI in a high profile case who can do their job and they still don't. Right. And so it's like, it's hard for task survivors to be like, Hey, put yourself forward. And socially you might be scorned, but like the justice system you're supposed to trust is also ineffective and broken. But how dare you, if you don't come forward till later kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely hard because there's, it's, it's one of those things where, there's your experience, there's the other person's experience, and then there's the truth. It's it's one of those things where it's just there's three different experiences that went on. And I've been in situations where I'm like, you know, that maybe that maybe that wasn't great. And you never even know what the other person thought about that same experience. And and that's the the one of the most important things that we need to why we need to have conversations early about sex and sexual consent is understanding what is happening in that whole conversation. So Moving to the, I guess the future of this and and the by kind of continuing on that bystander effect, you know, I think you mentioned on your website in one of your videos that you only need twenty percent of a group to to make momentum in order to make change. So, do you think we're far off from twenty percent? Do you think we're at the twenty percent? What is kind of your thought process on on the next steps and and the momentum? Because you talked about it a bit how we've changed, but how how much further are are, are we away than? from what you think? I think it's, um, the hard thing about that is that's on like a communal scale, right? So like the 20% is, um, it's kind of hard like to aggregate it to a full population. It really takes like you and your friend group, me and my friend group, 
you know, another guy in his friend group kind of stuff. Like it really kind of, and it can like be institutional. So if we're looking at like a college campus or a organization and business or, you know, all of those type of things. Right. So that's, what's hard about that is it really comes down to that. And then it starts to like become this huge piece. Um, I think we are getting closer. I think that we are doing a better job of learning how to talk about this and learn how to have conversations around it. I think we are, um, I think we are still in for a reckoning. I think that it is, I think there's going to be a large conversation that comes up sometime in the near future where we talk about um, masculinity from the perspective of like being anti-patriarchal, right? So I think a lot of times, like right now we're still in this, like, let's talk about healthy masculinity perspective. And I think we're going to have to advance the conversation of like, not only are you healthy, but what are you actively doing to also potentially dismantle or remove systems that are allowing this violence to happen? And I think I think a, a majority of the population is in the place of we want to talk about healthy masculinity and what it means to be healthy. I don't think we're necessarily at the place yet where we are ready to talk about the system of like, how are you also being anti-patriarchal and removing a lot of those things that are actively causing harm, the systems that are benefiting you, that are hurting, the things that you're not, you know, you're not necessarily responsible for, but you've inherited or grown up with this idea. And like, how are you actually working against it to actively like take away at it? Um, And I think that's a conversation that's going to happen, you know, as we continue along this path. But I don't know if we're necessarily there yet, especially except in the mainstream. Yeah. Are you you familiar with Next Gen Men, the organization? I'm not. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. The, I've had their I've had their co-executive director on my show, Jake Sticka, episode cool. 51, I think. And he, and their work is anti-patriarchal. It's um helping men to feel less pain and cause less harm. And though the approach that they take about it is it's not really a feminist movement, it's an anti-patriarchal movement and and how that brings young boys into the conversation and recognizing those systems. So I think you get a lot of value out of maybe that episode, but that organization yeah. as well. Um, so I guess for what would you say to any men that might be listening to this episode who are struggling with coming out or or sharing their story or kind of at making any movement to face that that experience and, and what they went through? Yeah, I think um, if you were dealing with a story of survivorship and you're trying to process it and you don't know how, I think the first thing is just always remembering to give yourself like grace. I know um, one thing I always tell survivors is it's not your fault, uh, regardless of what happened. And I think a lot of us may know that on a logical level, but it's hard. Um, I think survivors in general, it's just kind of because of the stigmas of the way the world talks about it. Like, even for me, there was a lot of stuff of like, well, if I hadn't drank in college, I wouldn't have known that I was drugged. Right. And so I think the first step is like, remembering it is truly not your fault. I don't know the circumstances of what you went through, what happened there. There is no degree of responsibility for that. You, it is not your fault that that happened to you. Um, and getting rid of some of that guilt and some of those pieces. Um, I think it's, a good step is figuring out who you may want to talk to about it. Um, you know, knowing that some people may not be ready to have this conversation and that can feel very devastating and difficult and hard to hear and to realize and to internalize. Um, and it's, it's hard not to feel like that's a hurt against you, but just recognizing like 
recognize who you might feel most comfortable talking to based on past interactions and exposures and some of those pieces. Um, another piece I would say is, you know, figure out what you're comfortable talking about before you disclose you don't owe anyone anything. Um, there are parts of my story that I will never tell in a public setting that I've never talked about, even in my private relationship, because they're not, they're not necessary for other people to know. And so recognizing like, if you don't want to talk about something, that's okay. You can talk openly about your story and experience. You can say, I experienced sexual trauma. You can, that's it, right? Like there's, there is a large degree of in between in that area, but like you don't owe anyone any information about your story that you're not comfortable sharing. And I think knowing some of that beforehand um, can always be helpful because it allows you to come into the conversation of like, hey, I want to talk with you about this. Um, you know, please don't ask questions while I'm telling the story, you know, or as you start to tell a story, say, I don't want to talk about these type of things. I'm not comfortable with that yet. All of those kind of pieces. Um, and recognizing like, once you even tell that story, you can stop that conversation from happening. You can say, Hey, look, I'm glad we talked about this. You know, I'd rather we not talk about this again, unless I bring it up to you or whatever it is, right? Like you can set boundaries around it as your story. It is your experience. Um, and just so knowing that, right. Um, and just recognizing that you're not alone. Um, I think it's it's very hard for men to talk about this because we don't always hear a lot of survivors come forward talking about their experience and just realizing like you're not alone and that this is something that happened to you, but it doesn't have to be your identity any more so than you want it to be. Awesome. Awesome feedback and, and, and advice. To those who have maybe seen this, seen moments that they could have intervened in the past uh, and regret it, or those who maybe want to keep their eye out on future instances, what advice would you give to people that are looking to intervene in these situations if, if they see them arise? Remember, it's, you know, your whole job is to prevent harm, whatever that means, right? So it could be someone making inappropriate jokes or using defamatory language, um, catcalling, or it could be something much more serious. So in the act of preventing harm, really center it on the person who's experiencing the harm. Um, usually things like physical aggression or even just aggression of words, things like that doesn't tend to help the situation. Um, so really center it on the person who's experiencing the harm and what do they need and what's going to be best for them. Um, remember that you don't have to do it alone. So it doesn't just have to be you going in and doing this by yourself. If there's other people around you, try and use those people to your advantage. Um, sometimes if the situation is more serious, recognize that you can look towards other authorities as a way of doing this. If you don't know the people, try and see if there's some kind of connection to friends, right? So if you see people in public and they're by themselves, look around and just try and take note of like, are there people who know these individuals that can also be involved? Um, and then sometimes recognizing like, intervening may be going up and directly asking like, is everything okay? Are you okay? What's going on here? Sometimes it's just also distraction, right? Like I remember I live in New York was one time on the subway, got off the subway and two guys were about to get in like a fight. Like two guys were yelling at each other about to get in this like physical altercation kind of thing. And this guy like on the opposite platform starts yelling, like, I forget the name he yelled, but he yells some female's name. He's like, happy birthday. And he's like, oh my God, I haven't seen you in so long. Happy birthday. Oh my God. It's amazing. Happy birthday. And he just starts yelling this. And like the entire thing stops. And it just like deescalates the situation because everyone's like, why the hell is this guy yelling happy birthday? And he's just yelling at a stranger who has no idea who he is either. But basically it just stops. And like all of a sudden one of the guys realize like, holy shit, this is going down. Like, and he walks away. Right. And so I think it's sometimes like we don't have to necessarily like interject and put ourselves in. Sometimes it's as simple as 
causing that distraction is enough. And then the other thing I would say is we know intervention is the most effective when it's in our communities and in our friend groups. If you see something happening in public, absolutely. You got to call, like, you got to prevent that harm. You got to be there for it. But it's also paying attention to the people around you, right? Like, inter- intervention is effective in public as much as it is talking, like I said, to that friend who maybe makes the inappropriate jokes in the group chat and having that conversation with them, or the person you know who just got dumped and all of a sudden is talking about, like, oh, you know, all women are like this, or all these people are these type of things. Like, it's, it's oftentimes much more effective to engage beforehand when those kind of values are taking root before the behavior actually looks out and just remembering like those are really great great places to engage yeah because because i can remember one time i was 18 walking in toronto maybe not even 18 but there was a, a moment outside of a bar i saw a woman sit down i think her boyfriend came out and he put his arm around her and it looks really like sweet if you weren't watching closely all of a sudden he's pinching her shoulder like you can see that she's in duress and and that there's some sort of a physical violence happening. And I remember just looking and staring at her and I just stopped, like stood in my place, looked at her. And then he, I think she like shrugged him off. He noticed and then he left and then she, she just mows at me like, thank you. But I'm like, I wish I could have done something way more. And, and so how do you, I guess, how do you approach that conversation of you wish you could do more, but you also, cause you hear sometimes, you know, if you, if you engage or if you call the police, when she goes back to the, the home, it's just going to be worse for her. And she's going to be more like, how do you navigate that? Yeah. I think sometimes, um, you know, especially in that example, I think if the guy leaves, you can have that conversation with her of like, Hey, are you okay? Um, do you need anything? Is there anything I can do for you? Is there any support you need? All that kind of stuff, right? Like if it's a safe place to ask the person who is experiencing something, what was going on? Um, like, what what can I do for you? What do you need? Like not a place of judgment. I think oftentimes avoiding labeling the behaviors of like, that was abuse because that can feel very difficult. And that person might be like, no, it wasn't. They love me, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think sometimes it's like, if you have a moment with the person experiencing it, just like, talking to them about what they need and what they're going through and really centering them front and center. Um, and if you, if you get that feeling of like, if you're in a situation you're trying to, if like, let's say the guy didn't leave or stuff like that, like I said, trying to avoid any degree of escalation. Right. So let's say that guy started talking to you and like started getting in your face, like trying to remove yourself because what's either going to happen is either you're going to experience violence or if he gets wound up because of you saying something to him, there's a chance that then he may take that out later on the partner, right? So like being very careful that if, you know, if he does say something to you, like, what the hell's going on? Be like, oh, nothing, man. I was just staring over in that direction. Nothing like it's all good kind of thing. Like sometimes just the fact that you have seen him do that and he knows you've seen him does that can obviously stop things, right? Um, and the entire the entire MO at that point forward is like, how can I make sure that no further harm is being caused. And then it's, I think it's also gauging like the situation, right? So like there's that difference of if you're on a busy street and a guy cat calls a woman, is it okay for you to call them out? Well, it depends. Like, is this, do they look like strangers? Does this guy look like a threat? Is he with his, you know, buddies, whatever it is. Right. So it's like all those kind of things of like, let's figure out the ways of, you know, what is the potential for harm to occur to me or, you know, this other person Versus like, what are the ways that I can potentially challenge this and just kind of prevent that behavior from occurring? But like I said, a lot of times it's just like centering it on the survivor or the victim of what do you need if you can ask that kind of question. 
And now I kind of want to, to ask you two final questions as maybe more rapid fire before I ask you where people can find you. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts on like the Ted Bundy show with, uh, or the movie with Zac Efron and the show, the Netflix show you, do you think these conversations or those shows are, are helpful in the conversation? Cause a lot of the times they make the serial killer or stalker really attractive and they begin to be sexualized on Twitter. Like, what are your thoughts on that? No, not at all. I think that um, even playing with the idea of romanticizing is just like, really, it's like this very dangerous line where a lot of times the creators or the people will be like, well, the people should recognize that this is bad. And I'm like, yeah, but you also have kids watching this. Like you have younger people who don't understand that, that this might be one of their interactions with this stuff that they have an attraction to, I think, especially like the guy from you, that was a huge thing where people, all these, you know, especially a lot of times like teenagers who are like, I'm okay with this. And I think it like blurs a line where people are like, well, what if it's like BDSM? And I'm like, yeah, that's a different thing. Like that is not what this is. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't walk this line of blurring these things. Cause I don't, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's exploitive. It's going to get you interest. It's, there's so many stories we could tell. That is not the story we need to be telling. Yeah, agreed. I, I saw a couple of tweets that are like, if if Ten Buddy looked like that was with me, I would let him kill me after. I'm like, um, let's let's end that discussion right now. Yeah. Um, but those are the ones that go viral. And then I know that you're you're you mentioned you have a lot of tattoos. You're tattooed up. Do you have like a favorite tattoo? I know that you have a lot, um, or one that signifies like the most means the most signification to you. Yeah, I would say I have a dragonfly tattooed on the side of my um, hand. And the reason for that is because my mom, she owns a honeybee farm. And it's like 40 acres of just like wildflowers. Um, and in the springtime where she lives, it's monsoon season. So it'll rain for like 10 minutes and then it just stops. And then it, you know, kind of goes back to normal. And so like in July, all these dragonflies will lay their eggs. The eggs will hatch. And so all at once, there'll be these swarms of dragonflies flying around and one time she went out and was washing them and then it was this quick flash rainstorm and it went away. And afterwards she went out and because dragonflies fly by their wings vibrating, um, they couldn't fly. And so ants started to come out to like eat them. And so she started going and picking up dragonflies and putting them in all these places so they could dry their wings off. And so she told me like it was just this really beautiful moment of just experiencing this, you know, such a fast moving creature just sitting there in your hand and so she told me you know whenever you're stressed in life whenever you're going through something whenever life is hard just always remember to hold the dragonfly in your hand and so you know that's always a favorite tattoo because it's just this kind of like very personal reminder of like just take a break take a step back pause you know remember life is life kind of thing and it's just kind of something that has a huge amount of significance for me Awesome. That's a great, that's a great, uh, ending idea and thought. Um, but Tim, I appreciate you so much for being with me today. Where can people find you, support you and follow the work that you're doing? Absolutely. I think the best way is just my website, timmuso.com. Um, most of the stuff I do is posted there and is linked to there. And that's probably the, really the best way to find me or get in touch with me. Perfect. And I will link that in the description of this podcast. So everyone go there to, to check it out, find those resources. He's got some great videos on there um, that you'll find great resources, ones that I found that that helped me navigate this conversation today. And if this is a topic that you're looking to find more about or find out more about, then definitely check out his videos. It's great resources. And Tim, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Luke, thanks for having me. 
Thank you everyone so much for listening to this week's episode with Tim Musso. I really hope you enjoyed it. It was such a great conversation. As he mentioned, his website is timmusso.com. I've linked it in the description of this episode. Also, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at the imperfect pod and email luke at the imperfect pod.com. If you've stuck around this long, I've made an announcement on my Instagram saying that the imperfect pod will be coming to an end in the end of April. I know it might catch some of you of a shock, but uh, if you did stick around, I'll be talking a little bit about more about that process in the coming weeks. And uh, I will be back with a ep- with a podcast about the same topic later in the year. Um, just felt like the imperfect pod had come to a close and more information will be coming soon. But if you want to find out more, message me on Instagram or email me and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. All right. And I'll see you all next week when we have Gaston Pierre, uh, where we talk about what life is like as a new father. He, we recorded it about a month ago. He was a month away from being, uh, having his first child being born. But next week, we're going to talk about that entire nine-month process of becoming a soon-to-be father. So stick around for that show next week. 